This is Moss Whelan and Story in Mind. Just getting out for the walk. And it is it's a bit warmer today. It's, uh, it's been chilly for maybe a week. And I was just finishing up some responses to uh, uh, the hashtag game, the uh, writer hashtag game, Fantasy with Palooza. And it's nice uh, when I'm on my game, I can... make a uh, intelligent uh, response. So uh, other writers, uh, uh, usually fantasy writers, uh, but there will be responses and to the questions. And it's, it's exciting to, to hear about people's stuff. It's wonderful. And let's see, I'm hoping to continue uh, with talking about planets because I have uh, a couple sort of couple reasons. One is it's revisiting planet Narnia and the notion of, of using. Uh, planets for themes, which is the case. It really looks like it's the case for uh, the Narnia series, that each of the books is um, loosely based on a theme, or that it's sort of the underpinning theme, starting with Jupiter and uh, rulership, leadership, Jupiter being the king. So, I've, I've actually done, yeah, I've done my Jupiter episode, and so now, uh, and I've done Mars, actually a while ago, so I'd like to do the moon. It's relevant to me, I'm, I've, I've set a book that is uh, a draft three or something of a, a book. It's a terrapin version of the moon. And one of the big things about uh, terrapin is terrapin's all about the Terrapin's all about the um, belief, uh, belief system, worldview, shared worldview. So, in the first book, we're in this city-state of Perlocks, and they don't have uh, a sun. The sun exists, but it's quite far away. 
And instead, because they're so close to the moon, you know, they have uh, a bright moonlight. Even though there's storms, uh, storms and rain, which is very Vancouver, uh, it, it, there's a quality of, <laughs> during the winter, there's a quality of dark and dim uh, in Vancouver. Because it's uh, overcast, not all the time, but in, enough to make it gloomy. So, uh, so yeah, so there is a, a moon, and it's sort of one of the states of Terrapin, and you can actually go to this state. It's close to uh, where we are in the first book, and it's it's talked about, and uh, we get to meet at least one person from there. So, uh, so now it's in the sequel, second book. It's it's all about it's all about the moon. It's all about going there and being there. One of the problems with, or <laughs> it depends on how you look at the problem, right? If it's a problem or not. But if you go to, uh, if you go to the moon, if you live there, spend time there, any length of time that, a long time, that you start to become like the people who, who live there, and uh, who believe in it, believe in the way it is. I don't know about. You know where you are, but the city that I'm in, even the the section of the city I'm in, there's these perception, sort of like say status. You know, do you live in the wealthy part or not? You know, uh, it shouldn't matter, but it's in there. This kind of disturbing, uh, disturbing notion. So the people who live on the moon, you know, they believe that it's the moon, or their version of the moon, and uh, they, they also, it also affects how they look, so how they think, it, it's also about how they look, how they act, um, the people who live in the capital city, the city-state on the moon, I believe it's uh, Luandan. And that is a kind of a bit of a, a reference to London, but it's also a a sort of etymological uh, confusion, sort of say a suggestion that that's you know that's the origin of the name of London. That London is actually from Luan. Right, which is like Luna, another name for the moon. So it'd be like the city of the moon. So I'm sort of giving a nod to that. And the people in this moon city are red werewolf people. That's, that's where it's at right now. I have other elements 
such as that uh, it's, it's, it's resembling a moon base, and I have, um, you know, retro rocket ships, you know, those 1950 gleaming uh, rockets, which have recently made a return with, is it called SpaceX? But it's this uh, using rockets, but also rockets that can return to Earth and then land again. So, so that's interesting. Because that, that was the whole thing about rockets, right? It's just sort of boosters, and then once they're used up, it's all over. Whereas this, uh, this, this new breed is ab- able to land and take off. So we'll we'll see. I'm still rooting for UFOs, right? We still have time. Let's build UFOs. So, um, the moon. Why the moon? Just jumping back to C.S. Lewis's uh, Narnia. I'm I'm not basing everything I'm doing on Narnia. I'm just I'm sort of getting inspiration. There were moments, there were things that were happening that that I found inspiring, and, and too uh, odd. There's things that you know are happening that sort of like you know oh you know is this a social commentary? Is this is this a sort of bias? It's impossible not to be political. Uh, somebody gave me advice about reading, uh, especially the first book, and saying, you know, well, this is someone who's through World War One, and uh, you know, you know, it's it's in a way, it's from a different world, a different time. But uh, in the Narnia series. The book, you know, the, where the, it's the theme of the moon, um, the astrological theme, right? So, uh, because C.S. Lewis was a medievalist, and so he had this connection um, to the to the notion of the uh, these spheres of influence, the music of the spheres, and. The book in the Narnia series is the, the Silver Chair. And right away you have silver, which is symbolic of the moon. It's been attached to it. In the same way that, say, gold is attached to the sun, uh, we have this symbolic connection. And it, it was it was really interesting going from sort of, uh, I didn't grow up with the books, but being into fantasy, eventually it happened, and I had seen the BBC um, uh, TV series from, I guess it would be the 80s. But, so eventually I caught up with the books, and and then later, after reading, I read Planet Narnia and then the Narnia Code, these two versions of the same argument, 
but right away it was just like, oh yeah. Uh, the description was that there was this depth, this sort of like going down into the darkness. Uh, that that that's one part of the story is this um, going beneath the surface, and what you know, say when you do a read through with these sort of these this kind of new perspective, new way of looking at it, then it opens up in different ways, and. Also, too, you don't have this sort of single bias, you know, of, oh, well, this is Christian, this is all Christian. All of a sudden, it opens up and it becomes um, more complex. And, and too, that complexity was always there. It was, just, it was just waiting for the right person to sort of stand up and go, you know, I have an idea. So the moon. So in the story... Um, there's this king, there's a quest to find this king or this prince, and eventually we get to him, and he's involved with this uh, throne made of silver. And uh, he has two faces. Uh, he has the face, he has the face that we see, say in public, uh, kind of above ground, and then we, we, there's the face that we don't see, which is below ground. <clears throat> and, you know, if you want an easy hit, you can see there's the movie. Oh, wait, I don't think they've done a movie version of The Silver Chair. But uh, definitely the BBC, it's out there. And, you know, with their big fluffy uh, puppet cat... The, uh, let's see, Lion, no, Aslan. Aslan is not a big part of this, you know, but does appear. Um, once again, we're dealing with this powerful female uh, character and, and something that Something that um, uh, something that readers eat, like say I had I had difficulty with sort of say you know saying wait a second is this happening again we're getting the the white witch from the first book and that's uh, it's not in truly entirely true that there's just bad women right that all bad. All women leaders are bad. There's other, there's uh, male leaders uh, in the story, but for these, for, for some reason, these, you know, bad female characters are just like these um, villains. They just really stand out, and perhaps it's perhaps it's just me. Uh, I, I suspect not, but. And so there's this, there's this um, power dynamic that's happening and this relationship that the prince has been kind of co-opted, uh, abducted. I'm thinking of the, um, the next Dalai Lama, or the boy 
that's supposed to be the next Dalai Lama, who was abducted by a Chinese secret service, the Chinese government, uh, because, you know, they want to shape this uh, religious leader. You know, the, the current Dalai Lama is in exile and uh, is still considered sort of like the at least the leader of the religion. I'm not sure of the, the status of, of the government. Uh, but I'm just, I'm just make, sort of, for myself, making that comparison. And the, uh, this, this Tibetan boy who's been, uh, you know, I'm sure, he's, I'm sure he's growing up in a very sort of, what is it? <laughs> dystopic environment uh, I, and who knows it, it could be you know we don't know he could be tortured you know in, into sort of brainwashing him into being uh, the puppet or it could just be sort of like say you know he's a human being but he's just totally boxed in you know and that's that's no life for a human being Right. Okay. So back on scat on uh, <laughs> schedule. Uh. So yeah. So we have these two faces. Uh, we have this um, person, you know, that has two sides of themselves, and that this is being this this is happening through the chair when he's. Uh, when he's away from the chair, he's, uh, he's under the influence of a, uh, uh, a dictator. And then, so when he's away, he's under the influence. And then when he's back underground, sitting on this chair, uh, he becomes himself, Right? When he's on the chair, he's unable to leave it. He's, he's sort of trapped there, stuck there. So that's the magic of it, is that... Uh, yeah. And it, to me, right away, it's sort of looking at the... Uh, that multidimensional or multichromatic, that, you know, that there's more than one side to this character... Uh, if we're going back to the first book, that, yeah, so we go back to the first book, and it's about rulership, but here's another example of rulership where there is a sort of the, a darker quality. So, you know, the benevolent, benevolent leader is... <clears throat> Um, I, I, and too, I, I would go, you know, this is a very human thing. Uh, the hope is that, you know, there's this virtue, right? That the leader has this virtue and is going to at least struggle against corruption, right? That they have, you know, values that are above uh, what's going on. <clears throat> I guess, you know, like a code a code of honor, a code of um, ethics. And uh, the, the BBC production, 
uh, for the silver chair was uh, was great for all of its sort of Doctor Who quality, you know, uh, sh- you know, sort of not shaky sets so much, but more more sort of like say um, costumes. Uh, I remember I remember in one episode they just went animation. I, I just could imagine the the uh, the meeting that happened and. The, they said, you know, oh my gosh, we need all of this stuff, but we can't afford, uh, say, the, the costumes or special effects. And they, they just decided to go old school animation. And I, I didn't, I, did, I remember not caring, you know, with my critical teenage snobbishness. You know, I was just, you know, sort of, okay, yeah, take, just take me there, you know. <laughs> let's, let's do this thing. Uh, so, so the two faces, what's going on with that? Well, our moon, we see one face, like the, it's, it's locked. And I can't, I, I'm not sure if it's, uh, tidally locked, tidal locked, but anyways, it's locked, uh, that, uh, so we only see one side of it. And the movement we see, it's the, it's the, um, the shadow passing over, passing over the moon, and uh, it's interesting because we say the dark side of the moon, but the dark side of the moon actually gets light, the sunlight that falls on the dark side. It's, It's dark because we don't see it, right, but there still is illumination there. So, you know, that gets me sort of thinking and it's like, oh yeah, okay, so how can I play with that notion of uh, in uh, Roman Greek mythology, there's a deity called Janus, and you can see Janus in January uh, that's the the month is named after uh, this deity and the connection there has to do with locks, locks and keys, doors, because it's the beginning of the new year, and there's a bit of a there's a bit of a personification going on. The deity has two faces, like on the left side of the head and the right side of the head. Rather than say a split between down the middle, there's actually two two faces. And so, so the symbolism for, for Janus is the symbolism for that time of year. And that say you're leaving, you know, you're, you're passing through this threshold. You're, um, you're leaving behind, you know, the space or the room that you were in of the previous year. And now you're going into the future, the new year. So there's an, an element of time that's connected to uh, connected to Janus, and I I, I just qu- quite like that um, the imagery, and so that's something I may use. I haven't gone there completely with this two-faced or two-sided um, symbolism. 
uh, of the moon. Why is that? Um, it's a bit farther away, that notion. Even, even though you can see it in what uh, C.S. Lewis is doing in The Silver Chair. He has this, you know, character who's got this dilemma, uh, who's kind of been hijacked, and who's uh, two people, uh, say, the... You know, a, a part of it... It's almost like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde situation, where you have this part of yourself that you repress, you know, in... And two, it's in, in this kind of, you know, subconscious id darkness. But now it's it's given sort of rain. And two, it is being reined in. It's being controlled by a person in power. And so I'm getting back to the, uh, the boy who uh, the Chinese government, you know, you know, hopes is going to take over... Uh, the uh, Tibet, uh, the Tibet religion, right? So they can sort of assimilate it. And just sort of the notion of sort of be, have, having that part of oneself uh, controlled. I, th- I think if you sort of branch that out as well, I'm just thinking of uh, the individual in, in a society, in Western society, and that we are asked to, like say the 60% are going to do what they're asked to, asked to do or that they're told to do. That they are entrenched in the bureaucracy of mind, right? That, you know, they see it as their duty to, even if it's uncomfortable, right, to, to uh, do bad in the name of good. And good being, you know, serving your country, etc., etc. So I'm sort, of, I'm sort of reading into this two-faced lunar uh, situation. So the, the flip side, too, is that there's a part of oneself, and I'm just thinking of kind of our two princes, right? You know, our Tibet kind of prince, and then our... Um, trying to remember the, the prince's name, in Narnia, our Narnia prince. And that our Narnia prince is it, it's not just that it's not just that the darkness is taken over, but that there's you know, a real person trapped in the scenario uh, trapped in the system and is um, it's, it's desiring a way out, but it's ineffectual, like not being able to uh, make an effect. And so, so it's sort of like say that the the bright side of the equation is submerged and the the dark side of the equation is on top. And I would say, this is my experience, but I would say that, you know, that's very much uh, part of being in this paradigm. 
you know, wh- whatever sort of angle or, you know, part of it that you're in, I, I think most people would agree that there's this kind of um, desire that we be automatons, unquestioning, and um, just serving this, uh, the machine, you know, the, the structure, the program, you know, that is running on the computer. Uh, and it, thankfully, you know, at least in uh, most democratic countries that there is the potential for, say, uh, an individual, if, if so inclined, if so moved, to stand up, to take a stand, and to say, look, you know, this is not cool, um, you know, we've really got to do something about this. Uh, even just to, even just sort of say, enshrining the right of, the, you know, the, for them to stand and to um, speak their mind, you know, that, uh, and, and that's not saying that it's a, you know, a sure thing or that it's a, that people won't get upset or, you know, that some extremist will lash out, you know, how dare you, da-da-da-da-da, you know, my, my, <laughs> my right to my ideology supersedes your right to, you know, question my ideology. And, and what? You know, th- that said, there is this repression that ha- that happens is happening, and that we are asked to, um, even though we are not, like say a human being is not a machine, so there's this element of suffering going on. And so I see that in, in uh, this character, um, in the silver chair, that there is this repressive uh, thing going on. <laughs> I'm just having this moment of, sort of like you know, you know C.S. Lewis and these powerful women, but also going back to his uh, childhood. And uh, his mother dying of uh, cancer. So I'm just sort of thinking about that going, you know, there, there's, there's this shock that happens. You know, I hadn't put that together before, but I'm sort of like, say, trying to piece it together and just sort of like, you know, why are these um, female tyrants? And, and I'll just go there for a second, is that Normally, we don't associate, like, say, I don't associate um, females with tyrants. You know, I, I associate men with tyrants, right? You know, the two, the two big bad boys, you know, for the communists, it was uh, Stalin. And for the uh, fascists, it was uh, Hitler. And, and two, we have, you know, minor, uh, you know, you can bring in other fascists and communists, but, you know, it's the, the big death toll and the big, um, uh, the nightmare of extremism. And so, uh, 
somebody's approaching with their with their doggy. They're just stopping to investigate the lawn. Hmm, what's going on here? Says the dog. Hold on, I gotta check out this tree. This tree is very interesting. Sniff, sniff, sniff. Alright. So my my point my point is Ooh, this tree is very interesting. It's like it's not totally not interested in me at all. So uh, it's, uh, it's like, oh wow, that tree has got to be very interesting. <clears throat> Giving it the good sniff. So uh, and too, I find myself coming back to submerged or repressed um, part of ourself. Uh, I, yeah, I was mentioning C.S. Lewis's mother, right? And just sort of going, you know, that's this huge, important, you know, this is like terribly important person who dies, right? It's the shock of mortality. Um, for me, it was my uh, biological father. Uh, who passed away when I was 11. And it was a kind of a muted shock. Like, I didn't understand what was going on. But it was immensely powerful in the um, repercussions. Uh, also, to the, the build-up to that. And, yeah, it, uh, it affected all kinds of things. Uh, you know, for me, a, a different situation, but um, because in the end, I wasn't close uh, to my father, and yet there was this uh, abandonment that happened. Um, I really uh, cared about this uh, relationship and this person, and it's uh, the the relationship. Parents are so loaded. You know, even if you never meet them, you're sort of going, you're an orphan, and you're going, you know. Well, what, what's my story? Um, so, I'm, I'm sort of get. I just have this different perspective now of going, okay, maybe that's it. You know, maybe it's his, um, it's his mother, right, that we're meeting. And uh, in the magician's nephew, we do meet. Uh, that, that there is that it's. I don't know. It's obvious to me. And uh, you know, somebody could come along and say, "Oh, you're reading into it." But there's this very touching uh, attempt to heal a mother, to save a mother's life, and I'm, I'm just, I'm just sort of going through and just like, well, you know, why, why would he sort of, why would he do that to, uh, like? What's this woman? Um, what's this powerful figure? Is it is it kind of like say a, a distrust, you know, because he, um, you know, this this sort of child's pain and rage at being abandoned, um, and not right. So there's this uh, <clears throat> expression in these stories. The obvious go-to before was that, you know, oh well, you know, 
he's a he's a Christian and uh, Christianity is all about repressing women and let's see <laughs> that said that said uh, I'm just thinking of say the Anglican Church and there are women and there's actually um, there was a big upset a while back about this. It was uh, the, the um, it was about women. It was about women in the church, but it was also about uh, homosexuals in the church becoming, you know, priests. And so it's sort of like say one step, and then the next step. And there has been this fragmenting that has happened in the church, even locally in Vancouver. That. Uh, you know, some some people just can't do it, right? You know, it's not. Uh, you know, you could make the argue that, you know, <laughs> that's so. You know, you're, this is what you're supposed to do. Right? You're supposed to be uh, compassionate, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and but tradition is ingrained. A- another angle that I was thinking was uh, Queen Elizabeth. And I'm, I'm just thinking about, say, when the coronation happened and uh, was that kind of a critique or a knee-jerk reaction? And... Yeah, so I'd, I'd like to go look up the dates when it was published, you know, and just, just to see if that's another perspective... It's sort of a response. Is he saying that monarchy in general is totalitarian, or? Uh, but I'm, I just personally, I'm, I find myself going back to his mother, you know, and the the despair and etc., you know, and uh, the disappointment that it's not forever. I guess. Anger. Also, too, things fell apart after that. There was no home anymore. And I think he was sent off to boarding school. How are we doing for time? Well, let's jump back into into the symbolism again. And let's look... Let's let's look farther back... Something that I'm still coasting off of is a TED Talk about language shaping cognitive reality. And I'm not, and I should say, I want to say realities. And I'm, I'm not um, sure exactly if that's how it was phrased. But it has to do with, say, how you are seeing the world. And I'd heard something similar before and I was like, ah, I don't know. But... Uh, one of the examples was, in German, the moon is masculine. And so, uh, you know, references to the moon are all feminine, right? They are all about, you know, soft, beautiful, pretty. And then the flip side is, in Spanish, the moon is masculine. So all anything to do with the moon like say you know they might be talking about the lunar landing you know and they'll you know they're not talking about it as if it's 
you know, oh, it's a beautiful thing, they'll be going, you know, oh, it's successful, powerful. It's a powerful moment, right? You know, this sort of underlying um, theme, uh, you know, giving something gender, genre, right? Genre is um, shaping uh, uh, how it's communicated. And so that's one example, say, of the moon uh, that just came up. So the moon, you know, in a sense, the moon has these two faces in, in this example. Uh, but also, too, you, you could have a language that doesn't have gender. I don't know if we can bring uh, English in that way, but I'm sure there's languages out there that have no associations. English does have these associations, such as the man and the moon, right? And is that a uh, is that a a holdover from? Um, I'm just thinking. <laughs> what was it again? Feminine and masculine. I think I actually got it mixed up. I think the Germans. Uh, the Germans have made the moon masculine. Anyways, if you're interested in that, go check it out and, uh, and let me know, because apparently if I'm unsure. But there is this gender difference between the two. Alright, so in English we have the man and the moon, and that could be a leftover from uh, the German influence on English. It could have to do with the... Uh, the Gaelic uh, influence. I'm, I'm sort of going through my foul cabinet of the mind and uh, seeing if I can pull out the, the Gaelic, you know, which is the, you know, the language before French and German uh, in uh, in the UK before it was the UK. One thing I think about it was how Gaelic shaped Anglo-Saxon that it had to do with it was either it had to do with say the grammar or the ending of words. I think it might have been the grammar that it shaped. There's something there. It had an influence. It sort of it, it didn't just disappear. There's this kind of hybrid rather than this total assimilation. And there are many many examples of of words. Uh, from different, you know, regions that have uh, Gaelic words that have survived. But, the moon. So, uh, symbolism-wise, I think going back to mythology, and in English we have uh, mon, uh, for Monday, whereas, uh, in the Latin, uh, we have lun, L-U-N, uh, and that, that's going, you know, for Canada, it's going through the French. Um, and that's an example of, say, where we don't get, you know, the French. We're not using the French, we're using the Anglo-Saxon, which is coming from the German. And what is mom? You can see 
Mon, you can see it in month, M-O-N. Uh, why? Because a month is a moon long. And Monday is the day of the moon. And uh, there are other examples if you start digging around in etymology. Uh, one thought I have is uh, since since we're getting it from the Germanic, is it going to be? I think <laughs> to, I'm just trying to sort of rem remember the the genre or gender. You know, is it? Would Monday in the in the Anglo-Saxon Germanic would it be uh, a male instead of instead of a female? A great example, and I'm thinking of say a deity. Would it be a male deity instead of a female? I'm thinking of the flip around from the Latin, you know, through the Spanish, that uh, we get. You know, the Roman or Greek example is. It's Selene, and then it's the sister of Apollo. So it's uh, she's the huntress. I think it's uh, Diana. I think. So we have. Um, there's a possible question there to to go up and you know dig up the man and the moon. E even with the Germanic influence in the language. Uh, even in English, the moon still—the moon is very feminine. Uh, more often than not, that I'll see art where it's—it's it's connected with uh, the feminine. A pagan uh, leftover, uh, a neo-pagan use currently is to look at the three phases of the moon, the DOC, and. Uh, it's often used by uh, neo-pagans to represent, and to in, in the English-speaking world, is to to represent a uh, threefold uh, feminine figure, uh, a goddess or a personification. So you often see these three women in these illustrations, and then over their heads are the, the you know the the waxing full and waning moons. I remember when my my mother and her, uh, you know, uh, hippie—was uh, it the veterans of the counterculture? These uh, women that they had a crone ceremony uh, for their fiftieth birthday. So when they had their fiftieth, they would sort of gather together, and they would give a silver crown and put it on the head of whoever's uh, birthday, and they were all wearing black. And this was to uh, symbolize cronehood and to celebrate, uh, I think another term for 50 is jubilee, so the, the jubilee year. And, you know, uh, you know of course, if, if you're not, you know, hip to this, right, uh, you know, it could be, uh, was it, disquieting? <laughs> it's like, oh no, it's, you know, uh, it's dark. It's dark. It's not good. Ah, there's there's all sorts of reasons for that too. Say, um, what I'm thinking of is the silver crown 
because they they got they made these cardboard crowns with like crescent moons and stuff, and then spray painted them silver, glued all kinds of stuff on. Interesting group effort, right? All these, you know, these diverse people. And no, there's not just three, because that would be, that would be perfect. But we can't have perfection. It would destroy the world, or at least reality, uh, as I know it. So we have. Let's see, just wrapping things up now. Um, and just, you know, with with the crown uh, idea, this is coming out of a reinterpretation of... uh, It's interesting, too, because it's in their territory. You know, I'm not... I'm privy to it almost like, say, border crossing, right? Like, you know... um, You know, I received a... I think it's called a Barbara Walker uh, Dictionary of Women's Symbolism, which was fantastic, and I actually passed it on to a woman... Uh, that I that I knew, and uh, she, um, it, you know, this sort of sharing of this information, a different perspective, right? Say, um, and uh, it makes sense because it's about experience, right? But uh, what I like about it is that this sort of act of uh, celebrating women and uh, this act of... And two, not aligning it, right, with any sort of religion. So I, I like that, that it's stepping away from that. Um, other people can. They could jump up and go, that's neo-pagan. And I'm just like, well, you know, there's no deities, or I should say deity mentioned. Uh... And knowing this group of women, that it's actually more psychological, and it's about their um, their not being a role, or say that you know, in uh, in in the religion that say all of these women are coming out of, which is Christianity, is that uh, what else can I do? Da 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 da. Oh yeah, the role, the role of women is reduced to this. The mother, the value statement is placed on the mother, and the mother with the baby, right? So it's it's the virgin who's become the mother. Um, you know, she's still a mother. I think she has kids after that, right? There's all these questions like, how can she still be the Virgin Mary? Didn't she have a bunch of kids? You know, <laughs> no, she's immaculate forever. But beyond that, you know, there isn't a role, uh, the roles that used to exist post, uh, post-crucifixion. And I'm thinking of, let's see, women were extremely involved in what was going on. And there was this uh, power shift, you know, as the testosterone steps in and says, you know, okay, we're going to make this, you know, this state religion, and, you know, we're going to fly flags uh, over the butchery, right? You know, it's sanctified by God, as religions do. 
and two is that you know is that is that human nature right is that what uh oh, it's starting to rain so it's time to head back to the ranch yeah yeah it's time to head back so wrapping things up uh two faces two sides of the equation um you know the the danger of that the danger of not having equilibrium are kind of you know you know for myself it's a individuation the sense of wholeness uh sort of instead of being a fragmented person having some sense of center or balance so that i can when i'm asked to do the horrible things that we were asked to do that i can sort of you know sort of give that balanced response and sort of go you know is this going to hurt other people is this going to hurt me <laughs> yeah. and then if it's yes and yes then it's no and no right that that's the hope it's almost like uh, asimov's uh, robot laws which really are i would say you know it's it's our laws right that should not should be but i think it's the basis for you know if you want to sort of share some law with uh you know some i don't know if you could give it with, to a kid but definitely for a teenager hit them with uh you know the the laws of robotics and i think that's an i robot you know but you know that's where we're at we are uh organic computers and we have an operating system but we require so much more you know programming um to guide us trust me i've been on the other side of the fence and it's a nightmare you know having people who are unwilling to to guide you and but too it was a perverse situation because uh you know they, they <laughs> what they didn't want is they didn't want to be conscious of that of the, of the guiding you know so it's sort of oh well we're not going to shape you right you're going to you're going to make you know decide things for yourself even if you know you're ask i was asking for for help and they were saying no 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 you're on your own kid and things went horribly wrong ah uh, so let's see keep going the moon right so you know from the mediterranean we're getting this uh we're getting this feminine moon uh we're getting uh and too i believe that 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 three threefold uh moon personification is also coming from the mediterranean uh what i've seen seen of the the weird sisters or the um the norns from up north these three three sort of similar examples that they you know i don't really see that the the association is there so it's a it's something to dig around in sort of like well what what is this a more contemporary example uh is uh perro perro is the perro is the uh clown the white clown it's all dressed in white white hat makeup and he's part of uh comedie de la art which is 
theater, a theater of clowns, where stock characters will, um, yeah, put on shows. And, and this has, has entered, uh, it's part of, quote-unquote, the West's um, grab bag of uh, symbolism and Perrault's big thing was Perrault was in love with the moon, right? So he'd look up at the moon and, you know, he was uh, kind of like Dante and Beatrice, just sort of, oh, you're so beautiful. Uh, I finally, I think, too, it's just end on the wolf uh, connection, the wolf um, symbolism, and I, I guess it's coming too from that wolves will howl at the moon, wolves will howl at other things, but there's this association, and so I guess it's that say. Um, you know, over thousands of years, it's just sort of noticed. It's like, oh yeah, the the wolves are certainly worked up and active and howling at the moon. And you know, we have contemporary uh, pop culture idols uh, singing about you know singing about that howling at the moon. Uh, and uh, and too, you know, from that we have werewolves who who transform, um, and that's something that I, I worked into the mix because my character is on the moon. That uh, I'm just sort of putting so kind of two 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 and two together, and going, you know, oh yeah, there's that two sided nature um, to werewolves, you know, that they're human, but they are also Wolves, right? They have they have their civilized side, but they have their wild side. I did an episode talking about wolves, where the origins for it really paint the the person who becomes a werewolf as actually uh, diabolical. You know that they actually seek it out. They're um, power hungry. They're willing to sell their soul, which I would translate as that so desperate that they're looking for a way uh, out. You know, they're, they're viewing their civilization as this kind of um, prison or restraint that's trapping them. And so they're attempting to break out. Uh, so early in the development of the manuscript that that is a seed that's planted. And so it's say it's thinking about this and going through the multiple drafts uh, exploring it from different ways uh, I'm, I'm getting help from my critique partner you know and trust me I'm giving it in response in return you know because it's gold or in this place in this case it's silver and we have returned to the ranch all right how much Oh, we're right on the cusp. There's another great threshold. Uh, is it synonym for Janus? That 
the two-faced uh, deity. I can remember a long, well, yeah, we did long, well, not, anyways, a number of years ago, when I was working on the, the first book, that I, I did have a, um, one of my kind of deity-like characters, superpowers of the fantasy world, uh, Terrapin, that, that there was a two-faced character. And it was, it was not the split, like the Batman two-faced, where they have these two sides of the face, but rather it was, you know, a face on one side and then a face on the other. And I don't think, I don't think I had really chosen, like say, had said, oh, you know, I, I'm attaching it to Janus. Uh, let's see, what else? What else? Uh, I think it's interesting that for all my um, skepticism and, and for all of my uh, need to translate, um, like say, you know, a person who's born into a religion could say, look, look at, say, what I'm talking about and that they, that, that, that there might be a concern about, say, my ability to comprehend evil or that, say, sort of, say, playing with fire and I, I sort of, I, I disagree. I think we get a lot from movies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that there is a preoccupation with, you know, sort of defining, you know, what is white, ro- wh- whoa, <laughs> what is right and what is wrong. Oosh. Uh, the, the joke there is what is white and what is wrong. And, um, I thought it was going in a different direction, but um, I dearly love the Wongs. They had a, a, a grocery store up the street, and I believe they've sold it, and it's uh, Filipino now. I think, it, well, it used to be, there was a sort of changing changing guard. Um, what is white and what is Wong? So, to end, that thank thank you for listening. Sort of, it has clarified some. Uh, the the big thing I've been wanting to sort of wrestle with has been these two faces, like you know, the dark side of the moon, um, like say, uh, Pink Floyd's uh, reference there. Um, that that actually isn't dark, right? It it's not dark all the time, and yet sort of we paint it as because we can't see it. The darkness is actually our perception, right? It's, it's, it's like the elephant in the room situation where you can't see the elephant and you can only sort of feel around and sort of feel part of it, and, you know, and you go, oh, well, I can't see the other side, therefore it's dark. It's dark to me, right? And that's, that's definitely something I want to work in and work in, massage, play with, um, uh, as as I'm, um, yeah, working, developing. Uh, just just a final statement that that's a big change for me. That sort of I used to think that the writing, that you when you wrote, um, it it was the the first draft that that was when you'd finished writing, but now I'm, my experience, you know, now is oh I see, you know that's just the beginning. Right? That's just the first step. 
uh, to be able to do a first draft, and there's this desperate, uh, and two, there's this, uh, it's not a laziness, it's more of a, a frustration, right, that it's, like, say, I was sending out, I, I got this notion, I cleaned up my first draft, and I was sending it out to um, agents and publishers in Canada, you know, and I, what was I doing, right? You know, it's not ready. It's not, it's not nearly done. I think it's that I was wanting to intro, invite the, um, say, especially the agents, I wanted to invite them in, you know, it's like, hey, let's work on this. Uh, but that's, for me, that's a mistake. I've got to keep going and I've got to, uh, you know, for the first book, it was 20, you know, with, with the agent, I did 20 drafts, you know, and vicious, mean, uh, just uh, horrific uh, editing, cutting, revisioning, on and on and on. And, but the the whole thing is writing. And yeah, so it, there's a paradigm shift. You know, I'm leaving the notion of what writing is and I'm learning to embrace this, this dark side, <laughs> this dark side of, of uh, writing, you know, the, the, the part of it that we don't see and that, we, that kind of we can't see. It's impossible to comprehend it, uh, what it takes to get to that final draft uh, yeah. So is that a maturing, maybe? Well, thanks for listening. Take care. Um, and yeah, don't worry. Just write, uh, you know, don't stop writing, you know, until, until it's taken away from you, I guess. <laughs> or you show it to someone and they say, okay, it's done. <laughs> Take care.